Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. Nahum chapter 1. We looked at verse 1 last week, and if you missed that or you haven't been with us, you're new. Uh, Several weeks ago, we wrapped up a series on the book of Jonah where we saw that God, out of his great love, sent the prophet Jonah to prophesy to the Assyrian capital city of Nineveh and told them to repent and to turn from their wicked ways because they were an evil, wicked city. And they did repent, and God did not send judgment. He did not wipe them out We fast forward now 100 plus years into the future and Nineveh has gone back to its old ways. And God is sending Nahum the prophet to tell them that it's too little too late. Now destruction will come upon the city. So that kind of brings you up to speed if you've not been with us. Let's pray as we begin. Father, you are the majestic God and how majestic is the work of your son, Jesus Christ, his life and his death and his resurrection. How beautiful it is, God. What good news it is to us sinners, but even how beautiful it must be to you, Father. How glorious it is that the gospel covers your children and that when you see us you see your son and how glorious that must be that you you look down upon us and you see jesus and it's why you can rejoice over us with singing god and how wonderful it must be and and what songs rise up in your heart when you look down upon us and you see your son it is so magnificent god we love you for that Would you send your spirit now, Father, to open our eyes to see wonderful truths out of your word, to to see who you are, to break our categories that we have for you, the little boxes that we put you in, God. And would you cause our eyes to see, as you see, how beautiful the gospel message is and how beautiful and wonderful the life and death and resurrection of your son is. And then may we, like you, have songs to sing because we dwell upon what Jesus did for us. Would you do that now and get great glory as you do it in our hearts? In Jesus' name, amen. It happened today, 271 years ago. One of the most famous sermons ever preached was delivered by a tall, lanky, emaciated man, a preacher who wore a powdered wig. On July 8, 1741, Jonathan Edwards preached a heart-stirring sermon in a monotone voice out of a single phrase taken out of a single verse in the book of Deuteronomy. Their foot shall slide in due time. Deuteronomy 32 Verse 35, that single phrase out of Deuteronomy 32, 35 was the text for Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Probably the reason why most of us know of Jonathan Edwards. He entered the pulpit on July 8th and preached a message explaining 
the spiritual condition of the unconverted and how close they were to experiencing the judgment and wrath of a holy God. He said in his sermon, the bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Pretty weighty words, true words. The sermon was delivered in a monotone voice without much, if any, inflection. And the hearers were cut to the heart and started weeping and crying out loud as they sat in the pews, crying and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It shows us, as we saw last week, that is the Holy Spirit through the gospel message who converts sinners and not the passion, although you need that, and not the delivery style of the preacher. Amen to that. It's not up to how well I preach for God to move. It's his word, it's the gospel, and it's the Holy Spirit. It is believed by some that Edwards wasn't even able to finish his sermon because of the reaction of the crowd in the pews because they were crying out at the top of their lungs, God save me a sinner. I encourage you this week to look it up online and and take a half an hour and, and read it and think about it. It will remind you of the book of Nahum. It will remind you what's wrong with this world. Jonathan Edwards is one of my favorite theologians. He's had a tremendous impact upon my life. I first read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God in a sophomore literature class. I don't think they put Edwards in the books anymore. Maybe they do, but if they do, it's probably just put there to condemn Christianity and to poke fun at Puritan theology. What people fail to realize, though, about Jonathan Edwards and the book of Nahum, for that matter, is that God is not merely a God of vengeance and anger. In fact, if you read Edwards, you will see that he loves to talk about the happy God. He loves to talk about the ever-increasing joy of eternity when God's elect people that he's adopted into his family will will be with God on the new earth and, and their hearts cannot take in the joy of this happy God. So Edwards didn't just preach about a God of anger. He preached about a happy God. I've stolen the title to this sermon from Jonathan Edwards. Don't worry, though. His sermon was preached pre-copyright laws, so we're not going to get any trouble for that. Don't worry about the fact that last week we only covered verse 1, and today we're only going to cover uh, one verse. I think, I think we're going to pick up the pace a little bit. But we must linger here. We must first build a solid foundation about the character of God so that we understand why God is sending Nahum to the wicked Assyrian city of Nineveh. The God that we will see in these verses in Nahum is the God that Jonathan Edwards spoke of in his famous sermon. What we will see about the triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit today, the God that we serve is this, and here's our big idea for today. God will take care of everything. God will take care of 
everything. God cares about everything. God cares about every detail, every sentence uttered. God cares about every word that has come from the mouth of every single human being that has ever lived or will ever live. God cares about everything that happens in this world. God cares about every motive that drives the heart of every human being. God will take care of his people. And God will take care of his enemies. Saying the same thing, but they mean two different things. God will take care of his people, his children. But God will take care of his enemies. And that's the big idea today. In fact, that's the big idea of the whole book of Nahum. God is not detached from this world. When you, when you suffer, when you suffer unjustly, and people do things to you that you didn't deserve, wrong things, terrible things, speak about you, do things to you, well, what do you do when that happens in your life? Like it was happening to those living in Judah who were suffering under the oppression of Assyria and the capital city Nineveh. What do you do when you experience intense suffering, unjust suffering? you remember that God will take care of everything. God is not detached from this world. God is very involved even when it seems as if he isn't. Do not mistake God's seeming silence to mean that he is not concerned, that he is not involved. He cares God cares for his reputation, his glory, his fame, his renown, being seen and delighted in the world. God cares for his people, those that he has adopted into his family through the gospel. God cares for his creation. And he will take care of his enemies. In the end, God will take care of everything. And you can trust him. To do just that. Look at verse 2 with me. The Lord Yahweh is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Nahum gets right to the point. God is angry and Nineveh is going down. Not only is God angry at Nineveh, but he is going to wage war against them. Here, Nahum pictures Yahweh the sovereign Lord as the divine warrior par excellence, ready to defend his glory and ready to defend his people. Now, interesting thing about Nahum's prophecy here, though, is, is the poetry. Nahum's prophecy it contains some of the most eloquent, the most beautiful, the most sophisticated poetry that we see in the Hebrew Bible. Nahum's poetical skill is evident. It's very descriptive. However, his prophecy is not just beautiful and eloquent and, and descriptive. It is very horrific. This is war poetry. Nahum describes the Lord as a warrior who comes to annihilate his enemies. Not exactly Elizabeth Barrett Browning kind of poetry. On the one hand, it's very descriptive and eloquent. But on the other hand, he's describing the entire and utter destruction of an entire city. Men, women, children. 
Here's what I love about Nahum, though. He's so God-centered. The first words of his prophecy speak about the Lord. Nahum comes out swinging. He says in verse 2 that Yahweh is a jealous God. When Nahum says that the Lord is jealous, don't think of jealous the way we think of, like some boyfriend who's very confining and controlling, and he makes everyone's life miserable. He is describing the Lord as a jealous God who is jealous that his honor be maintained, his people protected and his creation maintained and restored according to his ways. Understand that God is jealous that his honor be maintained in this world. He's jealous that his people are protected and he's jealous that his creation is maintained and restored according to his ways. The Hebrew word here for jealous, kana, refers to God's zealous protection of his people and his furious judgment against his enemies. It says that when Nahum says that God is jealous, it means he's zealous, passionate for his people, and he is furious against his enemies. God so loves his reputation and his people and his creation that he will rise up to defend them. Like a mother hen who takes her chicks underneath, takes her babies underneath her her wings to provide protection from harm and danger, the Lord does so with his people. He watches over us and the Lord rises up against any enemy that would try to rival his sovereign rule, especially those who live their lives recklessly. That's what Nineveh was doing. They had turned away from the repentance of Jonah's day and were living against and in defiance and in contrary to the sovereign rule of the Lord. In addition, they were terrorizing Judah, God's people. So Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, rises up as a divine warrior to take action against his enemies. It's, it's proof that God will take care of everything. God cares for his people. God is involved in the lives of his people. God responds with vengeance precisely because he cares. Do you, do you remember cassette tapes? I think I just lost half of you. Before iPods and MP3s, we had cassette tapes. I won't even, bring, I won't even go back further and bring up eight tracks. Uh, for those of us who do remember cassette tapes, do you remember the cases that you could carry them in? They're kind of like little briefcases. You could fit about 30 ca- uh, cassette tapes in there. Well, like any self-respecting child of the 80s, I had my cassette tape briefcase box that I kept all my tapes in, and I kept it in my car like most people. The problem, though, is that one night I forgot to lock the doors of my 1963 cherry red VW Bug. I parked it at Hardee's, which is now Carl's Jr. one night. And as I returned to my car later that evening, I noticed the door was ajar. And I discovered that my tape box with my 30-plus tapes inside my little briefcase thing was gone. Somebody had broken into into my bug and taken my tapes. But the person who broke into my bug and took my tapes had two rude awakenings, though. The 30-plus tapes in my little cassette box briefcase were all Christian rock bands. I doubt they had any interest in listening to them, although they needed to because they were a thief. 
The second rude awakening that they experienced was that I had an older brother. We lived in a small town in Oklahoma, and the guy, Gary Fulbright, who stole my tapes, told some people, and word began to spread, and we found out who had my tapes. And so one night, my brother, Stan, comes home with a black eye and two boxes of cassette tapes. My brother Stan met Gary in the parking lot of Walmart as he got off work and he confronted him and they got in a fight and Stan not only got my box of tapes back, but he got one of Gary's as well. Stan defended his little brother and meted out some justice that cost Gary. And that's how the Lord works with his people. He is a zealous, devoted, passionate lover of his bride. And if not in this life, and understand that, if not in this life, then in the next, he will make everything right when somebody slights his bride. When somebody slights one of his children. If not in this life, then for sure in the next life. He will make everything right. That's the God that we serve. He is jealous for his people. Exodus 20 verses 5 through 6 says, You shall not bow down to other gods or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me. And keep my commandments. He's a jealous God. He's jealous for his people. In fact, his name is jealous. Exodus 34 verse 14. For you shall worship no other God for the Lord Yahweh, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Did anyone ever tell you that when they shared the gospel with you? That the God who wants to save sinners is jealous and that his name is actually jealous? Why doesn't anyone write a worship song singing and praising the jealous God whose name is jealous? Why don't we sing, you are jealous, we worship you, capital J, jealous, jealous God. Or jealous, I lift your name on high. Jealous, I love to sing your praises. Wouldn't that change how we worship? Wouldn't that change how we read our Bibles? Wouldn't that change how we pray? The next time someone asks you what a Christian believes and what church is all about, tell them that you worship and follow the jealous God whose name is jealous. When they ask you who you worship, say, I worship jealous. It'll start a conversation. Maybe we should change the words to this hymn. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, to jealous Jesus, full of might. The Lord is a jealous God who loves his people. And his jealousy, his character, who he is, moves him to action to defend them at all 
Pentecost. Get the notion out of your head that Jesus washed his hair with Pantene Pro-V and got manicures and his hands reeked of hand cream. He is a divine warrior who is jealous for his people and he rises up to defend them. That is the God that we serve. And that's the God that Nahum loves. And that's the God that Nahum is telling Nineveh is going to be knocking on their door. Look at verse 2 again. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Did you see Yahweh's jealous devotion for his people and his honor? Did you see what it stirs up in him? Three times Nahum tells us in one verse that the jealous God takes vengeance on his enemies. Get Nahum's point. He wants you to get this. The Lord takes vengeance on his enemies. Vengeance is what emerges from the Lord's jealousy. Because the Lord so loves his bride, so loves his children, so loves his people, he responds righteously when he avenges her. But understand this, because this is what Nahum would tell you if he were here today. It is the Lord who avenges. Never are his people called to seek revenge. Romans twelve nineteen. I should let the Apostle Paul have a say here this morning. He says this in Romans twelve nineteen, and he actually quotes the verse that Jonathan Edwards used to preach sinners in the hands of an angry God. Romans twelve nineteen. Beloved, never. What does never mean? Never avenge yourselves, but leave it. That means you believe that God will take care of everything. You leave it because you know he's going to take care of everything. Leave it to the wrath of God. Your name is not in that verse. You leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, and now he quotes this passage out of Deuteronomy 32, 35. Vengeance is mine. What is God saying? He says, you don't have any rights to vengeance at all. God says, all vengeance belongs to me. It's mine. You can't have it. It belongs to me, God says. I seek revenge. My people do not seek revenge. Vengeance is mine. I will repay is what the Lord says. Not you, not my people. I will do the repaying, says the Lord. That means when you get on Facebook and you slander politicians, and you slander your neighbor, and you slander your boss because you're suffering unjustly because some law has passed that you don't like, you don't have the right to slander the leaders of this country. You don't have the right to seek revenge through your Facebook posts. Vengeance, revenge belongs to the Lord and not to you. What do you do? You pray. You vote, you petition, but just because you have freedom of speech does not mean that you're free to speak anything you want to speak about anybody who was made in God's image. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. 
This verse is hard for us because when we see evil in the world, when we don't like things that our government does, we don't things like things that our boss does, when we see injustices in the world, we want immediate justice. And we wonder, God, where are you when all of this evil is happening? Where are you when the child is abused? Where are you when the greedy corporation swindles its employees, when the girl is sold into the sex market? We want revenge. We want justice. We want to seek revenge. We want judgment to follow on our enemies. Every single one of us feels that. But vengeance belongs to the Lord and not to us. We all feel that. That something is wrong when injustice happens in this world. I think that's why the movie The Avengers recently raked in $200.3 million in its first three days in the movie theaters. Why was The Avengers so successful? Because it was a great movie, cool effects, Thor, Iron Man, The Incredible Hulk, and Captain America all in one movie? Yes, but probably too because deep down inside we all have a desire that good should triumph over evil. We want wrongs to be righted. And certainly that's what Nahum felt and certainly that's what Judah felt as it was being bullied by Assyria. They wanted justice. Now, Lord, now was their cry. And it is our cry too. We want justice yesterday, don't we? But notice how patient the Lord is. Nahum says he keeps wrath for his enemies. What does Nahum mean when he says that the Lord keeps wrath? He means that God, who is not like us at all, displays a calculated control in his dispensing of vengeance. God never gives way to a quick outburst of emotion. God never goes on Facebook when he's frustrated with something happening in the world and and type up something that he thinks, maybe I should delete that. God never does that. God never reacts in a way that he will regret later. He is not like us at all. Please don't mistake God's patience and seeming lack of interference into the world as him not being involved. He is very involved but he is patient. God has not forgotten Judah when Nahum is prophesying. And God has not forgotten any of his people. In fact, God never forgets his people. God has not forgotten the injustice that you have suffered. Have you suffered unjustly as a teenager? I remember hearing my parents talk about one of their friends who was a financial guy who who built them thousands of dollars. And just as like an 11 or 12 year old, that sense of vengeance rose up in my heart. And I wanted to do something against this man who had slighted and wronged my parents and stolen money from them. We all sense that. Have you suffered some sort of unjust experience or situation from someone? Remember, God will write every single one of them one day. He will. Why does he do it? Because ultimately, any injustice in the world that is done against anyone, you or me or anyone, ultimately it is done against him. He is the creator. This is his 
world. He has given his laws to govern his world. Therefore, you can bet your bottom dollar that God will respond. He will not turn a blind eye. This is his world. You think your world's messed up? You think your world's screwed up and messed up and terrible? This is God's world. His world is messed up. And we messed it up because of sin. God made this world to bring him glory and for the creation to enjoy him. God created this world to experience his blessing. He made this world to reflect his glory. All of creation is meant to enjoy God, but the Ninevites to whom Nahum was preaching weren't living the way that God designed. Remember, they were a wicked people. They captured enemies in war. They would cut off their hands and arms and feet and ears and other extremities and gouge out eyes and chop off their heads and make towers out of heads. And they would hang heads in the trees like Christmas ornaments. The people in Nineveh were wicked. They were evil. They were proof. That Genesis 3 is true. They are proof that something big happened in the Garden of Eden long ago. What what went wrong in the Garden? What, What went wrong with humanity? You must understand the first three chapters of the Bible if you are going to understand the three chapters of Nahum. Everything in the Garden of Eden was fine. It was blessed and it was good until one day a mysterious talking snake showed up and started asking questions about a certain tree. And everything has gone downhill since then. Everything got messed up. That's what Danny Glover's character Simon says in the movie the Grand, in the movie Grand Canyon. It says everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. This is not the way it was supposed to be. We were made to experience the Hebrew word shalom, peace, wholeness, wellness, harmony. That's what the Garden of Eden was like. God was thoroughly enjoyed and worshipped. Creation was enjoyed. All human relationships were pleasurable. All was well. But then this talking snake shows up, the devil, and started asking questions and everything went downhill. Adam and Eve sinned, our first parents And they disobeyed God and shalom was lost. Peace was lost. The world became broken. Suddenly there were sinners in the hands of an angry God. And Nineveh, like their parents, Adam and Eve before them, turned away from God. And that's why God is sending Nahum to Nineveh. They have turned away from the way life is supposed to be. They have turned away from shalom. They have perverted shalom, peace, wholeness, wellness. They have perverted shalom. They have perverted creation. They have perverted relationships. They have perverted city life. They have perverted worship. So God moves and he gets involved in Nineveh's affairs. Why? Because he's that kind of God. Because God will take care of everything. God is about to take care of Nineveh. Why? 
because God cares about his creation. God cares about justice. God cares about shalom. God cares about his reputation. God cares about his people. And he has entered into the world to fix what was broken. I want you to remember the big idea today, to get it into your head and your heart. I want you to remember it when you experience wrongs in this world, when you experience pain and death and sickness and suffering. I want you to remember when you are tempted to think that God is disengaged and that God is not involved. I want you to remember that God will take care of everything. You can trust him. We all know people that we can trust, don't we? And we all know people that we can't trust. You ever, you ever work with someone and they're spearheading a project and you're thinking, oh man, the ball's going to get dropped here. And you worry about that. You're involved in a ministry. You hear that somebody's doing some project and you're like, you know, things are going to get dropped. I know this person. They're not reliable. But we all know people who are reliable. That at work or church or somewhere, we hear that, that they're the one in charge, that, that they're spearheading some ministry or some project at work. And you hear that that person's in charge and you have that sense of relief that it's all going to be taken care of. I, I can trust that person. That's what God is like. You can trust him. He will right every wrong that has ever happened in this, his world. God hates how sin has wrecked his world. And he cares about you when you experience the result of Adam's sin in this broken, twisted world. Neil Plantinga says, God hates sin not just because it violates his law, but more substantively because it violates shalom, because it breaks the peace, because it interferes with the way things are supposed to be. In fact, that is why God has laws against a good deal of sin. God is enthusiastically for shalom and therefore against sin. Let's say that evil is any spoiling of shalom, whether physically by cancer, say, or morally, spiritually, or otherwise. That's why God is dealing with the city of Nineveh. They have violated his commandments and disrupted shalom. God kept wrath stored up for them for a while. But Nineveh exhausted God's patience. He waited a hundred plus years from the time he sent Jonah to the time he sent Nahum. God is very, very patient. The prophecy of Nahum is so relevant for us today, but God's patience has a limit. Judgment is coming. The time to repent is growing short. Nineveh did not heed God's warning, and time ran out for them. God's wrath was stored up but eventually he unleashed it on this city. The city of Nineveh was destroyed by the Medes and the Babylonians in 612 BC. And God used these two nations to wipe out this wicked city that had destroyed Shalom in his world. God's fury was unleashed on the Assyrian capital city. It was good news for the nation of Judah. It was good news For God's people. But even better good news 
is that God unleashed his fury another time. God's fury was unleashed on his own son over 2,000 years ago at the cross. And God loves sinners, and he sent his son to redeem their twisted spiritual condition. God sent Jesus to forgive sinners, to transform them, to clean them up, to mend them, to fix them. But in order for any sinner to experience God's great love and forgiveness, they have to repent and trust in Jesus. You have to be struck by the fact that you've not only broken God's laws, but you've perverted shalom because of sin that has come down to you because of Adam. But if you sense that and you say, God, forgive me, and you trust in Jesus, if you do that, then this world is all the hell you will ever experience. If you turn from your sins and trust in Jesus, this world is as bad as it gets. But if you don't repent and you don't trust in Jesus, then this world, as messed up and twisted as it is, is all the heaven that you will ever experience. Right now, we are living in the time of Jonah, if you will. But the day of Nahum is coming. God will come again to judge this world, to right every wrong, to destroy his enemies forever in hell, and to usher in his kingdom of ever-increasing joy. How do you respond today? We saw last week that you can't legislate salvation. Kids can't be made right with God because your parents are. Children, will you turn and believe today? Will any of you? Jonathan Edwards ended his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, with these words. Therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Let everyone fly out of Sodom. Haste and escape for your lives. Look not behind you. Escape to the mountain, lest you be consumed. God is coming to judge this world with vengeance and wrath. You can either face it yourself or you can let Jesus face it for you as he did on the cross. Will you turn from sin and trust in Jesus today? Leave today with this thought impressed on your mind and on your heart. God will take care of you. Of everything. He is coming and he will restore shalom one day. Until then, hang on and trust his promises. Let's pray. Father, such a a weighty verse, and I know it's heavy, and I don't want to give the impression that you are not a loving God. Father, clearly your love and justice was demonstrated not by pouring your wrath out upon us, but by doing it, on pouring it out upon your son. I pray today that people would see the beauty of the gospel message and that because the full fury of your righteous anger was absorbed by your son Jesus that we can be made right with you and truly experience shalom. Oh God, may we rejoice in the gospel this morning. 
that we are made right with you for those of us who are your children. And would you give us an ever-increasing burden for the lost in this city and in this world and around the world. And then may you get great glory through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.